From the studios of Boise State Public Radio News, I'm Gemma Cotet. This is Idaho Matters. It's Friday, which means it's time for our reporter roundtable. We're going to get you updated on the news that made headlines this last week. A lot to get to today. So today our panel includes Kevin Richard, senior reporter and blogger with Idaho Education News, Nicole Blanchard, outdoors reporter for the Idaho Statesman, and Ruth Brown with Idaho Reports. Happy Friday, everybody. Happy Friday, Gemma. Okay, let's begin with some happenings at the legislature. Ruth and Kevin, I know both of you have kept your eye on this, but there was a closed-door meeting yesterday, and some shakeups happened uh, in, in GOP leadership Ruth, can you set this up for us? Sure. Uh, so shakeups is an understatement. What happened <laughs> is the Republican caucus in a very unusual uh, meeting voted to uh, oust the majority leader, who is Megan Blanksma. Um, afterward, they um, had a there also was a meeting to um publicly retain Mike Moyle as the Speaker of the House. Uh, and what makes this unusual, Gemma, is I, I looking back at, at legislative history, I, can, I can't find um, this ever happening uh, in past legislative sessions. Usually leadership mm-hmm. is selected um, before session starts, but to remove a majority leader during the middle of a legislative session sends a clear message that the House Republican caucus is not um, in agreement, that there is uh, tension. Um, We know a little bit about that um, tension due to some of the changes Mm -hmm. in the budgeting process. But I mean, yeah, I'll I'll let Kevin weigh in, but it it was unprecedented. Yeah. So, Kevin, I I mean, I have to tell you, when I read about this yesterday, I, I was completely confused. And I don't think I'm the only one feeling that way. Because it is so unusual. It, it is confusing. Uh, Ruth laid out the history really well. We just don't see this very often. And we saw it in the aftermath of a very tense debate on the House floor on Wednesday on the first budget bill to come before the House floor. And, and to, to try to simplify this, what this budget did and what we're seeing with the follow-up budgets that are they're going through the House and Senate right now Uh, These are designed to be what uh, supporters are calling maintenance budgets. They're supposed to basically fund everything the agencies got last year uh, they get in this budget. And then we'll Mm -hmm. come back later in the session, supposedly, and look at increases, new items, and so forth. A lot of lawmakers have questioned this process. And you had kind of this, uh, this pushback within the budget committee just last week. Uh, the questions uh, surround whether these are really maintenance budgets at all. Are they really adequate? Do they properly fund these agencies? And are they going to be the last budgets we see for these agencies? There's, you know, The critics of this process are saying, look, there's no guarantee that we're going to see any kind of follow-up budgets, any kind of uh, add-ons later in the session. We may never get the chance to vote on anything else budget-related for these agencies later. This whole new budget process that we've talked about a lot over the past few uh, weeks and months really came to a head on the House floor. Megan Blanksma was the only member of House Republican leadership to oppose the first of those maintenance budgets uh, when it came up on Wednesday. It was a vote that really divided the power structure within the Republican caucus. So then fast forward to what we saw Thursday and these 
really unusual votes to uh, ultimately remove one member of the leadership team. I will say, so, Kevin, we, uh, oh, go ahead. Um, Idaho Reports had Megan Blanksma on the show this morning. It was um, We had her in the studio this morning, and she was mm -hmm. in good spirits and has no intention of uh, resigning from the House. Uh, so viewers can um, watch that at 8 p.m. tonight on public television. Um, so while I think there is some disappointment and I think there is tension within the House, I think they will proceed. Additionally, today on the House floor, they went ahead and they did pass several, uh, several more budget, um, budget bills. So they are moving forward, nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And so, so with that said, I mean, Kevin, does this show? I mean, fractures not just within leadership, but within the Republican Party. I mean, and we've always known that there's. You know, there's there's a there's a push and pull sometimes, right? But it seems over the last couple of legislative sessions, this divide seems to be getting wider and wider within one party. Right, and I think there's always going to be an ideological overtone to a lot of what we see at the state house, and this is no exception. Mm -hmm. I think this whole debate about the maintenance budgets, it has more or less divided lawmakers along ideological lines conservatives and, and hardline conservatives in the legislature, they really like this maintenance budget proposal. They really like this approach because they see it as a chance to uh, really cast up or down votes later in the legislative session on individual line items instead of getting this all in one big lump, uh, you know, full funding for an entire agency where you can't really pick and choose and say, well, I, I want to fund yeah, I want to fund public schools, but I'm not convinced about this component of the public schools. Mm -hmm. budget. I'm not convinced they need all this money for uh, for computers or I would like to put less into whatever. Um, you know, the, the, the hardline conservatives and the conservatives in, in the legislature see this as an opportunity to really uh, be able to you know, to laser focus on some of these new proposals and some of these line items and vote them up or down. That So I think there's definitely an ideological split going on within this uh, debate over these budgets. So, Kevin, who takes over uh, Blanksma's position then? Uh, tune in Monday. Uh, House Republicans are scheduled to go into caucus again on Monday to vote for a new majority leader. There are uh, there are rumors <laughs> for sure, and I'm sure there's uh, plenty of jockeying going on behind the scenes. So uh, we'll find out. Uh, we'll find out next week. Okay. So Ruth, um, talk to us about a bill that would have made sex crimes against children punishable by death. I know there's some updates in this, but for folks who may not be familiar with this bill, can you just give us um, a brief synopsis of, of the bill itself? Sure. Uh, this is a bill from Representative Bruce Scogg out of Nampa, and it would have made the crime of lewd conduct with a child younger than age 12 punishable by death. Currently in Idaho, the only crime punishable by death is first-degree murder. Um, in 2008, uh, the United States Supreme Court ruled in Kennedy versus Louisiana that sentencing a person to death for any crime other than homicide or crimes against the state, which would be something like terrorism, is unconstitutional. Uh, however, Representative Scott seems confident that under our current Supreme Court that that could possibly change. Uh, so he uh, moved forward with the bill. It 
uh, there's a similar bill that is moving through Florida. I think it's important to note that in um, 2022, for example, in the state of Idaho, we only had 51 murders. Now I say only um, mm-hmm. just because that number is lower than other states, but it's it's a relatively number low number for charging. By comparison, in 2022, Idaho prosecutors filed 328 cases charging adults and juveniles with lewd conduct under the age of 16. Now, maybe all of those cases didn't involve children under 12. Scog's bill would um, would only punish um, cases that had children under the age of 12. But I think I think that that is a stark contrast to compare how many people we could see on death row should it move forward. It did pass, a new version of it did pass out of committee and that heads to the House floor. Um, there was almost no testimony in opposition to it. So I uh, I foresee it passing, but you never can tell in that building. Okay, so right now the bill is looking to to be passed. Right now the bill is heading to the House floor and the House will vote on it. Okay. And once they vote on it, Ruth, if, if they vote on it and there's an, and, and it, and it moves forward, what would then happen at that point? Uh, it would need to go through the Senate. It would have to pass the Senate as well. And the governor's desk, um, which depending on how long it takes could, you know, be March before we know, but ultimately Mm -hmm. if it does pass, it would be a dramatic change in, um, the sentencing of these types of crimes. Um, so additionally, I I would expect there will be an immediate um, appeal from someone because currently, like I said, there is a, there is a Supreme Court case that deems it unconstitutional to um, to execute people for child uh-huh. rape cases. So, Ruth, you brought up the fact that um, these 328 cases charged adults and juveniles with lewd conduct with a child under 16. So has anything been talked about in regards to what if a a minor is is charged with something like this, if this bill passes, right? Um, Because normally they're charged in juvenile court and they go through the juvenile court system. Uh, You can't charge someone with murder in the juvenile court system. Uh, Correct. Uh, So it gets a little wonky here. Um, Generally, if a juvenile were to commit murder, it would be waived up to a adult court automatically because of the severity of the crime. Um, if a juvenile were to commit um, or be accused of lewd conduct with a child under the age of 16, it would be up to the prosecutor whether they want to waive it up to adult court. So it, say someone, uh, a juvenile, uh, does is accused of one of these crimes and it is particularly egregious, depending on the county, depending on the prosecutor, it could be waived into adult court. And if it is waived into adult court, and the prosecutor in that county wants to pursue the death penalty, that would be possible. Um, There is another Supreme Court um, case, but it's from back in 2004, um, that's Roper versus Simmons, that deems it unconstitutional to sentence a person to death who committed their crime as a juvenile. Um, Mm -hmm. So there is some Supreme Court precedent, but again, the Supreme Court today is very different than than the Supreme Court in 2004. And I think that's something that Representative Skog has openly talked about in um, in court is that, or I'm sorry, uh, in committee, uh, mm-hmm. that 
that he believes uh, some of these some of these decisions could change. However, just for clarity, I don't think his his target is is juveniles. That would that right. would be a whole other process. I think his target would be adult cases um, in which um, he believes or um, the prosecutor believes the incident uh-huh. was particularly heinous. Okay. So, Nicole, talk to us about um, this controversy surrounding an Idaho pharmacist. Um, apparently, the pharmacist refused to fill a prescription for miscarriage medication. So, um, you you wrote about this. So, so tell us what's going on here. Yeah. So, I saw something about this on, I guess we're calling it X now, the website formerly known as Twitter. Um, mm-hmm from a local family physician who tweeted that his wife had been um, denied a prescription to help manage a miscarriage from a local pharmacist. And so I reached out to to that family. Their names are Lauren and Kristen Colson. Um, and they kind of talked me through their experience. So they were told that they had a non-viable pregnancy. Um, Kristen opted to manage her miscarriage medically, which can help um, move things along more quickly, um, more safely, make sure that all of the tissue from the pregnancy passes. Um, And she went to call her pharmacy and and check in on her prescription. And the pharmacist, they declined to tell me which pharmacist this was and and where this took place. But the Mm -hmm. pharmacist told her basically, I don't feel comfortable giving you this prescription with the abortion laws that Idaho has on the books. He was worried that having that filled under his license could potentially put him in legal trouble because of the type of prescription it is and some of the abortion laws that we have here. Mm-hmm. So my understanding, um, Nicole, is that the pharmacist wasn't necessarily morally opposed to this, right? But it, correct, it, it was more like, what are the consequences if this pharmacist gives out this medication? Because my understanding is, is that it is the same medication to to manage a miscarriage. Is 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 it the same type of medication you would give if someone had an early term abortion? It is. So it's um, the prescription that Kristen was going to fill was for a medication that's called, and forgive me if I mispronounce this, but it's called misoprostol, which is part of a mm-hmm. protocol. It's often used with another medication called uh, mifepristone, I think is how it's pronounced. Um, that is currently actually the legality of it is being debated in the Supreme Court next month. Um, but that's usually part of a, a protocol for uh, what, what's called like a chemical or a, um, a medical abortion. Mm-hmm. And so that obviously is not legal in Idaho. Um, but this pharmacist was concerned that, you know, this dosage of this medication could potentially be a legal issue for him. Like you said, it it didn't seem like it was a moral issue. We don't know. It, it didn't seem like he weighed in either way. Um, when mm-hmm. he was talking to the Colsons about the prescription. But yeah, from a legal standpoint, um, it seemed like there was some confusion about, is he allowed to prescribe this medication? Is there a gray area when it's, you know, a miscarriage versus an abortion? And I think that kind of 
points to some of the the issues that we're having with the vagueness of some of Idaho's abortion laws over the past couple of years. Well, and Nicole, I think when you when you interviewed Nicole Sons, I think something very interesting was that um, we we should note that Lauren's a, a physician, and, yes, yes. and so right, so so he was talking about the fact that I mean he understands this, he knows his rights. I mean he is a physician in Idaho, so following this, also they are doing fertility treatments. So Kristen mm-hmm. has had numerous miscarriages, unfortunately. So the thing that stood out with to me in this is that you know. Lauren said, you know, he, he said, we know what to do, but what about someone who were to go to a pharmacist and, and the pharmacist says no, and, and then they believe that that's, that's the end of the road for them. Right. And that's a point that both of them brought up kind of in different ways. Like you said, you know, Lauren mentioned him and his wife are both very educated about um, what their rights are as far as using this medication for miscarriage management um they've used it in the past i believe and so they're in a position to kind of push back like kristen said she talked to this pharmacist and said actually no it's like you're allowed to do that um you're allowed to give me this prescription in this case and she also mentioned that she was able to call her doctor's office and get her prescription sent over to a different pharmacy and picked it up the same day and so that kind of resolved Um, Any concerns that they had, because Lauren pointed out to me, you know, when you're miscarrying, it can, um, you can potentially have issues with bleeding, you can potentially have issues with infection. Um, That's Mm -hmm. why they're, these medications typically are prescribed. um, And so you can potentially have those kinds of issues if you don't get that medication in a timely manner. Um, and Kristen pointed out to me, you know, she felt very lucky that she lives in Boise and that it was easy enough to call her doctor and get a prescription sent to a different pharmacy. But there are communities in Idaho that maybe only have one pharmacy. And so if somebody were to run into this problem in a really isolated community, there isn't, you know, another pharmacy around the corner that you just have your doctor send it there and the problem is solved. Mm-hmm. But I think it goes back exactly to what you said, right, Nicole, that and, and what the Colson said to you is the vagueness of this uh, of this law. And and then, you know, pharmacists and, and other healthcare professionals being concerned about, you know, criminal liability on their mm-hmm. end. So, it, I mean, they're just this is so nuanced. And it goes back to, you know, women's bodies. Right. And we're seeing, you know, a lot of we have several lawsuits. I couldn't even begin to tell you how many there are at this point. Um, I'm sure I would get it wrong. But we have several lawsuits, including some that are at the Supreme Court level about um, Idaho's abortion laws and, you know, seeking to clarify those, seeking to clarify what is a life saving measure, what is a health saving measure when it comes to abortion. We haven't really seen Um, these medications brought into the conversation outside of um, Attorney General uh, Labrador pushing to join a Texas lawsuit on Mifepristone, which is, again, going to be heard um, in the Supreme Court in March. And so we'll we'll Mm kind of see um, what happens with that. But that still doesn't necessarily clear up any kind of gray area for providers who are, you know, rightfully worried that they'll lose their license. Mm-hmm. Well, thankfully, uh, Kristen was able to get the help that she needed because a miscarriage is devastating. So mm-hmm. it's just one more layer on that. So appreciate your reporting on that. 
Uh, Kevin, I want to head back to the state house. Um, in Governor Little's state of the state address at the beginning of the session, he made it really clear that one of his big priorities this session is school facilities, and he gave examples um, of of some schools that are in really horrible disrepair. Kevin, um, so where are we now in regards to potentially getting some money to to um, hopefully fix some of these schools? Well, Gemma, we have a school facilities bill that it was introduced on Thursday, and it addresses school facilities and, and a whole lot more. It's it's really it's a goulash, as we <laughs> described it on Thursday. It has a lot of things in it that, uh, on the surface, don't seem to have a whole lot of anything to do with replacing or repairing aging or broken down schools. Uh, there is mm-hmm. a component in the in the bill which uh, has support of House Speaker Mike Moyle. Uh, there's a component that would reduce income tax rates. Uh, there is a component that would um, that would get rid of the August school election date, uh, which is you know, one of the three dates that uh, school districts can run bonds and levies. Uh, there is a, a component that would allow the, the governor to directly hire the um, executive director of the state board of education and name the president of the state board of education. Uh, there are, mm. there's language that uh, pertains to critical race theory. I mean, there is a whole lot of stuff under, under yeah. the sun on this one. And it's worth noting that, um, you know, Idaho, I, I think it's baked into the constitution. I, I'd have to double check. It's been a while. Um, there's language that basically restricts the legislature to taking up one topic in one piece of legislation. So it will be really interesting to see how this uh, how this wide ranging bill is uh, massaged and explained in mm. a way that it uh, that it falls under that single subject uh, category. So the debate's just beginning. The bill is just introduced in uh, the House Revenue and Taxation Committee on Thursday. It'll come back for uh, a hearing and. You know, in the end, it does do some of what Governor Little talked about at the outset. It, uh-huh. it would create a fund where the state would go out and they would create a, a, a bond mechanism that would distribute money to schools that they can use to uh, re- replace schools, repair schools. Uh, and that was kind of the the thrust of what the governor was talking about at the beginning of the session. How this bill gets uh, gets received as it works its way through the legislative process uh, that's uh, you know that's something we're going to be watching very closely this could be one of the the biggest bills we see this session and certainly one of the most uh, one of the longest bills we've seen this session <laughs> okay but money wise kevin um if, if this were to go through is it, you reported that it would be upwards of 2 billion dollars over the next decade so would that 2 billion dollars go specifically to school facilities or as you said is it it's this mishmash of everything else that was put into this bill no i think the idea is that it would eventually get to that two billion dollar figure o- over 10 years and you know a, a big part of how it does that is like i said the state would go out into the bond market and they would you know they would sell a billion dollars worth of bonds and the proceeds would go to the schools to kind of offset the local bonding that they have to do for facilities. So that mm-hmm. instead of you know, a district like Boise or West Ada, like we've seen, uh, 
instead of those districts having to go back to local voters and say, uh, we, we need a bond or we need a levy to, to pay for schools, the schools would be able to use the state money to cover costs or or mitigate some of the costs of facilities. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's a good point, Kevin, because you've been on our program and you've reported on this um, numerous times at at, um, uh, at Idaho Ed News, is, is that there have been numerous times where these bonds and levies have not passed in these school districts. That When I say their buildings are crumbling, I mean, that's an accurate statement. And and they're falling down and, and kids are still going to school in these buildings. And, and I think one of the things I'm going to be really interested in watching in all of this is, you know, we have a school facilities problem statewide in, in the aggregate. There's no question about it. And depending mm-hmm. on who you believe, which study you, you cite, we have millions upon millions upon millions of dollars of repairs that, that are needed. But it's not the same problem across the state. It, it doesn't play out the same way. And part of the reason it doesn't play out the same way is that voters have taken very different approaches to local school building decisions. I mean, last time Boise had a, a school bond issue on the ballot, it passed with 86% support. I mean, there's hardly anything in the world that 80, 86% yeah. of people agree on. Boise voters agreed on that bond issue. A few months ago, West Ada went to voters. They, they had a levy proposal. It's a little bit different than a bond. Uh, $500 million that they wanted to put towards buildings. It, it didn't pass. It didn't uh, get the vote needed. You go to a small district like Salmon. Salmon's kind of a poster child in this whole debate. Voters up there have voted against bond issues for uh, to replace really uh, decrepit schools. Twelve times bond issues have failed in Salmon. Mm. So you've got this real disparity between a Boise district, and not just Boise, but a lot of districts around mm-hmm. the state where patrons have stepped up and said, okay, well, we'll pay. We, you know, we'll, 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 we'll support a bond issue and districts where that just isn't happening. So part of what I'm going to be really interested to see how this, how this bill would work is how do you support the salmons of the world that have had, where voters have not supported bond issues in the past and have really led, created the situation that's become a dire uh, situation and at the same time, how do you avoid penalizing voters and patrons in districts like Boise where hmm. where they have stepped up? So mm-hmm. how do you address the problem without creating more disparity and you know creating winners and losers and, and penalizing districts and communities that have you know done a reasonably good job of trying to stay on top of building needs? It's a very complicated issue, which is part of why we've never seen the state figure out a solution to it. So if something passes, it would be historic. But this bill, it, it, there's a lot going on in this bill. So we'll, we'll, we'll have a yeah. lot to, to chew on here in the weeks to come. Yeah, sounds like it. Okay, so Kevin, I want to talk an, about another bill. Um, can you explain what this parents as teachers bill is exactly? Uh, vaguely. <laughs> it was very, very okay. briefly <laughs> in, in committee yesterday, and there was very little debate about it. We'll, we'll see more about it. it. It's a program that's been in place uh, now for a few years Um uh, that allows parents to take more of a lead role in teaching their, their kids at home. And this uh, this legislation would address how that's working and try to clarify uh, that process. So again, you know, the thing we, you know, we talk about sometimes here is that uh, an introductory hearing on a bill is very short. We don't get into a lot of detail about the bill. We'll see how this one plays out as it returns, presumably to the Senate Education Committee, which uh, introduced it on Thursday afternoon. 
Okay. And then I think this is super interesting, Kevin. Uh, and this, this bill's heading to the House floor. This would exempt some English language learners from the state's reading test. So let, let's start with the fact that, that we have a problem when it comes to kids reading at grade level when we look at our test scores. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, so how does this then bill. play into that? Yeah. This is an interesting bill, and, and it it went back to the committee on Friday. Uh, what I'm hearing from the sponsor is that that's uh, it has to go back for some ter- technical fixes. So okay, there won't be a vote on this uh, necessarily in the next couple of days on the House floor, like uh, like we had thought on Thursday. House Education Committee passed this unanimously. It's a really interesting concept, and it, and it comes from Representative uh, Sonia Galavis, who's a well-known teacher in Boise. Uh, you know, she's uh, she's an elementary school teacher. She deals with this stuff uh, on a daily basis. Um, and she argued in committee, and the committee agreed unanimously that what we have here is a situation where we have English language learners, especially kindergartners, coming in. They take this Idaho reading indicator. They have no English language skills to even take the test. So you're asking kids to take a test that they have you know, no... You know, they have no ability to to take the test. They, they so they don't do very well in the test, obviously. Mm-hmm. And the schools get data that suggests that the, these you know kids are way below where they need to be in terms of reading skills. Well, they they have very li- limited English skills. It's not really a measure of anything but the fact that they've had very little exposure to the English language. So what she's saying is, let's not give these kids the IRI. Let's not give them the Idaho reading indicator. Let's waive that and let's do other assessments that really drill down into their English skills and, and help, you know, help them develop English language skills so that maybe at a later point when we uh, when we test them on the reading indicator, we'll actually get a better idea of their their reading skills. So mm-hmm. went over really well in committee. Um, I, I expect that we'll see that bill come back in a slightly different form, in a slightly tweaked form in the weeks, uh, days and weeks to come. Mm-hmm. Well, and then on top of it, Kevin, at least at my my kids' schools, they a couple of years ago, I believe, they they changed these tests that they're that they're all on com- computers now, or you know, you take them on a on like a um, iPad, something like that, or a computer, and um and that can be really disconcerting for kids. I mean, my own kiddos, I, I mean, there 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 was some discrepancies in their scores just because I, you know they came home, they're like. Well, I couldn't even finish reading the question, but, you know, and then it went to the next one or, or you hit something wrong. I, I mean, so then think about a, a, a child who, who English is in their first language. I mean, there, there seems to be, I mean, it, it is very nuanced. I think when we, when we take a look at the results of these tests and why we're seeing the, the, you know, the grades that we're seeing, does that make sense? It, it absolutely makes sense. And I think if you had Sonia Galvis on this uh, show right now, <laughs> she would be saying basically... Uh, the same thing. Uh, as a teacher, I think she would tell you, look, what teachers really need out of the side of our reading indicator is an idea of a, a kiddo's reading skills. That's what they want. Mm-hmm. It's a test that's supposed to help teachers teach reading. It, they're supposed to use that data and say, okay, this is uh, this is this kid's strengths. This is this kid's weaknesses. Let's work on the areas that they really need work on. Let's uh, you know, help them continue to build on what they do well. You know, that's the whole point of the, the Idaho reading indicator. It shouldn't be measuring how adept is a kid at operating a computer. It shouldn't be a test right. of computing skills. It shouldn't be a test of, you know, 
command of the English language, it should be a test of command of reading skills. So I think that's what uh, Representative Galavis is trying to get back at uh, with this bill involving English language learners. But but you're right, it's such an important assessment and it's such and it's such an important stage in a child's development as you're trying to teach kids uh, reading skills that they're going to need for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. So it's in committee right now, Kevin, but but it, it will likely come out of committee and then go to the House right. floor. At, right. It got at some kicked point. back to committee. And what will probably happen, I'm guessing, is that a slightly different version of the bill or a reworded version of the bill will come back probably in the next uh, little while. Uh, my guess is uh, from the way Representative Galavis explained the changes that need to be made, it sounds fairly minor. So uh, my, my guess is if that's the case that uh, the committee will, will probably view it more or less the same way as they did the first time around. I'm, I'm guessing. I, I don't know that for a fact, but I, I, we'll, we'll see what happens in, in the days to come. Okay. So, Nicole, wolves in Idaho won't be going back on the endangered species list. Can you tell us um, what happened here? Sure. So, um, wolves have had a very interesting, long history um, in Idaho since they were reintroduced in the 1990s. Um, they were endangered at the time. And in, gosh, I want to say 2011, um, they were delisted for what's known as um, the Northern Rocky Mountains area. So that's mostly Idaho and Montana. Um, Fish and Game has been managing the wolf population here. Um, they've remained considered threatened and endangered in um, the rest of the U.S. since then. So with Idaho... Idaho's um, like really broadly expanded wolf hunting and trapping laws over the last couple of years. Um, we saw some conservation groups that said, you know, we're concerned that we're going to kill too many wolves. We think that these wolves here in Idaho and Montana that since 2011 have been um, no longer considered endangered, we think that they need these uh, Endangered Species Act protections as well. So they filed several petitions with um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which handles those sorts of distinctions at the federal level. Um, mm -hmm. And the conclusion of that came through on the 2nd, um, so a week ago. And the Fish and Wildlife Service basically said, we think it's fine. <laughs> we think that these wolves are, are in good shape. They had two kind of um, nuanced decisions where on one hand, they said, okay, this northern Rocky Mountains area, which is Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, um, some small mm -hmm. parts of Oregon, Washington, Utah, we can't declare that specific segment an endangered species population. We don't think that that's a distinct enough group that we can say like this particular set of animals is at risk. Um, and they said, you know, some of these other petitions asked us if we would list um, – just wolves in the Western United States. And while we think that that is like a legitimate population that could potentially be listed, we think that those animals are, are in good shape. We think there's a healthy enough population, a strong enough population that we wouldn't consider it um, threatened, vulnerable, or endangered. And so there's a little bit of nuance there, um, a little bit of confusion, but Essentially, um, it means for wolves in Idaho and Montana that they're not going back on the endangered species list um, and nothing really should change with the way that fishing game is managing them. Okay. And so then there are also some, some 
Republican lawmakers, Nicole, now want to delist grizzly bears as well? Yeah, so uh, these are kind of the two big controversial predators that we have here in Idaho. Um, Grizzlies are still, at least in the contiguous United States, so uh, not counting Alaska, they're still considered, um, I think, technically threatened. They're under Endangered Species Act protection, which is why, um, you know, there's no hunting season for them in Idaho um, Um, or anywhere else in the lower 48. Um, So we have seen this other argument kind of playing out over several years as well. And this one also kind of has its roots in the 1990s. Um, That's when there was a federal move to create what's called recovery zones. So there's these six um, geographic areas, three of them are in Idaho, or at least partially in Idaho, um, where Fish and Wildlife Service said, we're going to focus on bringing grizzly bear populations back in these areas. Either they're really good places that we think grizzly bears could thrive, or um, they're already there and their populations are struggling and they need some help. So um, we've got the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem Recovery Zone, which is parts of eastern Idaho. Um, bears there are doing pretty well. They're you know moving outside of that recovery zone. Um, we've got the Cabinet Yak Mountains, which is um, very far north panhandle into parts of Canada and Montana. Um, we've got bears there. And then there's this kind of big swath of area called the Bitterroot or the Selway Bitterroot mm-hmm. Recovery Area um, that was set up in the 1990s. And it's huge like area of central Idaho and up into part of Montana. And it was the one spot in the 1990s that researchers said, you know, there aren't any bears here right now, um, but it seems like really good grizzly habitat. This is, you know, the Frank Church wilderness. Um historically is bear habitat but bears haven't been seen there grizzly bears haven't been seen there at least in person um since the 1930s we've had a couple of them that have wandered through according to like scat samples and trail camera and radio collars in the last Mm -hmm. you know five ten years um so (laughs) all that to say uh last year a Montana judge decided that Fish and Wildlife Service didn't do its due diligence in helping grizzlies recover in that particular area in the Selway Bitterroot. And so last month we saw the Fish and Wildlife Service come up with this project plan and they're taking public comments still where they're saying we might take some kind of approach to help grizzlies recover in this Selway Bitterroot. So that would put bears into central Idaho and potentially really connect these two separate populations that we have right now. Hmm. Um, Republican lawmakers, um, state elected officials, including the governor, um, including all four members of our congressional delegation, have all been pretty outspoken about saying grizzlies have recovered enough. They don't need to be endangered species anymore. We're seeing some livestock conflicts. We're seeing some human conflicts. Um, We would like to turn bear management back over to the state level and let Idaho Fish and Game handle it from here. So it's interesting that these two conversations are kind of happening at the same time, that on the one hand, you've got all of these um, all of these decision makers in Idaho who are saying, we have enough bears, this is fine. <laughs> like we, yeah. we want to um, no longer have these special protections for them. And on the other hand, and Nicole, you've got I'm going to have to government. 
Yep, okay, and I, and, I, and I have to, and I just have to wrap up right now and get to break, but I really appreciate that detailed um, information about that. And you can also read Nicole's entire article um, at, on, on the Idaho Statesman. A big thank you to Kevin Richard, senior reporter and blogger with Idaho Ed News, and Nicole Blanchard, Idaho Statesman's outdoors reporter. Thanks so much for listening to Idaho Matters. Boise State Public Radio and Idaho Matters are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gemma Gaudet. We'll see you tomorrow. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.